And I think we're a little lucky because we're also like in this, I don't want to call it an echo chamber because echo chamber kind of has a negative connotation, but in this like cool community of people that are pushing the envelope and, and peers that are doing things like vertical farming and thinking about things like Ayurvedic medicine and, and making that mainstream. And I think I think that's really been an, an incredible sort of intersection with with sustainability and with health and wellness. Welcome back to another episode of Everyday Endorphins. This week is dedicated to discussing the intersection between sustainability and specifically sustainability in retail with wellness. And I am so honored to have had Chloe Songer and Sewer Alam, co-founders of Thousandfell, to come onto the podcast this week. Thousandfell is a New York City-based sneaker company that offers a line of biodegradable shoes with the goal of changing how footwear is produced and consumed. In this interview, Chloe and Stuart talk about how they got inspired to start Thousandfell after working in the retail industry in Asia for a few years and seeing how unsustainable the practices were there and in the retail industry at large. And they also talk about what circularity means when we speak about sustainability and what it means to be fully circular in the circular economy. Thousandfell also has a ton of great content on their Instagram page about circularity, so I would definitely encourage you to check that out. We also dive a little bit deeper into Chloe and Stewart's personal routines and how they integrate sustainable practices and wellness practices in their day-to-day lives. I'm super excited for you guys to hear this interview. Before we get into it, make sure to follow this podcast on whichever listening platform you prefer. Give it a like, rate, review, and enjoy listening. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Hi, Chloe. Hi, Stuart. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. Hi. Really excited to be really here. Really excited to be here. It's great to reconnect, and I'm really excited to kind of dive right into our conversation today around Thousandfell and the intersection between sustainability and wellness. I know that we spoke probably about two or three years ago now, so this was like pre-pandemic, about Thousandfell, and I was so impressed with what you were doing then. And I feel like every time I'm on LinkedIn, I see another post and like an award and honorable mention for the two of you with everything that you guys are doing with Thousand Fell. So it's just been incredible to kind of see the trajectory uh, of of the company. And uh, now that you're launching, you know, a new business as well, there's a lot that we can talk about today. It's been a whirlwind. I'm sure I think we probably met um, end of 2019, right when we were about to launch Thousand Fell. Yeah, yeah. And that was that was right, yeah, before COVID and everything. And it's funny because I know, Chloe, you were actually like living in Wuhan. And now, like, I didn't know what Wuhan was at the time. And then, of course, when COVID hit, <laughs> like, everyone knew what Wuhan was. Yeah, I lived in um, Wuhan in 2014 and 2015 for 12 months or a year. And um, yeah, it's actually, it's an incredible city. I have, like, incredible friends throughout Wuhan and central China. But Nobody knew what Wuhan was before last year. I would always say um, directly west of Shanghai, north of Hong Kong, south of Beijing. Like I'll be like, just in the center there. That's like a, a good way, I guess, to describe it. And then, of course, everyone knew what Wuhan was. It, like no one would – at the beginning, no one could stop talking about it. But today, we're not here to talk about COVID and Wuhan. We are here to talk about Thousand Fells. So I'd love to start out with hearing a little bit about the origin story of how you guys started Thousand Fell, what got you interested in sustainability and being in the retail space? Yeah. Well, a lot of that actually goes back to China, to be honest. So Stuart and I actually both met in Asia. Stuart was living in Thailand, northern Thailand, while I was living in Wuhan. We both did a postgraduate fellowship in Asia. And then neither of us wanted to leave because it was amazing to be abroad when you were young and postgrad. Um, and so both of us ended up getting jobs in and out or close to the retail and branding industries, I guess, right. in Shanghai. So Stuart was working for a branding agency that was bringing um, 
Western brands essentially into the Chinese market. So building pedagogy around Beyonce or Skull Candy or some like big brands, right? And bringing them in and building a marketing strategy into the China, the Chinese native marketing platforms like Ichii or Yoku. And I really wanted to work for a brand. I was like, I had worked before in college for 18 months actually at Condé Nast in Vogue and Vogue China. I speak Chinese. Um, but I, I really wanted to work for a brand, see the business side of fashion. So I ended up working for Alexander Wang's mom, Ying Wang, who had launched a made in China, designed in China luxury label called Arate. Um, and I worked under a woman named Jasmine Ting and then another woman named Christina Liao, both of whom had started their careers in New York. They were Chinese born American or American born Chinese. I'm saying it wrong. Yeah. Re- that reverse that. Yeah. Reverse that. Uh, awesome women who had like moved back to Shanghai and not moved back. They weren't born there, but moved to Shanghai to have this like kind of global Chinese American citizen brand. And it was a gorgeous brand, but I got to you know be on a small team um, and really got to see kind of the means of production. Um, and I'll let Stuart Town tell what he also saw separately, but we were both really close to factory systems and sample rooms and, and fabric sourcing um, uniquely so that you don't see, I think, earlier in your career when you're at a big brand here. And we also had to see a lot of the waste. Um, and so it kind of stuck with me as I went to my next role. Yeah. I, I So Chloe teed it up really nicely. And I, I mean, I feel like you did something similar with, with Vogue and Condé Nast when creating pedagogy within a new market um, and trying to instill all of this like legacy brand information uh in fast forward, essentially, but got really involved when I was in Shanghai in startups and in teams that were launching um, new footwear brands, new cut and sew brands, new made to measure brands. And what was so interesting is that, is that it was this boom in sort of e-com that was happening maybe three years or four years after it had happened in the US. The infrastructure was starting to pick up there much in the same way. Um, but you were so close to the means of production. So I spent a ton of time in between Dongguan, Shanghai, and Fujian, which were kind of the footwear capitals um, uh, in mainland China, really building out supply chains and and following early founders um, that had had experience doing that. And Chloe's right. Like it was, listen, I imagine that it was the same sort of like creative creator energy that you felt in New York in like the 80s when the garment district was probably humming. Mm -hmm. Everything was like a 30-minute plane ride away. Or like a, a quick like train ride away, and it was like so incredible to be there. But on the flip side of that, you also saw kind of the environmental impact um, that 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 was taking, right? Like how intense some of these factory systems were. You know what cutting scraps were looking like. What kind of just like working conditions weren't necessarily dangerous, but like footwear has a lot of glues and it's got a lot of lasting, and it's just it's a really like intensive kind of a visceral like build out experience that we were seeing really early on in, in our early twenties. Um, and I think that really informed kind of the, the niche within retail that we were really looking to occupy and the things that we were looking to change. Um, and I think it was, I don't want to necessarily say it was a unique perspective, but it was definitely a perspective that we got really, really early on. Um, and we're able to kind of jump like kind of two feet in, um, to tackling the problem. um, I came back from China, ended up working at Gap at Gap Inc. And you and I have a friend in common from Gap, but, um, and got to see, I think on a bigger scale, what production, mass production, global production, and a global brand network looks like. Um, and, you know, during that time, Stuart was actually working for another startup brand. We just had this epiphany, like waste. <laughs> and like, like the system can't go on in the way it's going on. And we're not moving fast enough. You know, at these bigger brands, like even a move into organic cotton, 60 to 90 cents a t-shirt hits your bottom line. And if the customer's not willing to pay four to five X the cost of that innovation more on their price tag. So for a 90 cent innovation, it's $4 more. You're not going to, you're not going to be able to afford it. Um, and so it's, you know, we're balancing this tightrope because brands, many brands are publicly traded. Many brands have really tight margins. You know, you know, retail is a, not a margin-rich business like something like pharmaceuticals or tech or SaaS. Really tight margins, particularly when you take into account the cost of advertising. Um, and so I, we didn't feel like sustainability was moving fast enough. And so that kind of led us to Thousand Fell and then now Super Circle. I think it's really interesting that you had that perspective being in Asia and seeing how much waste 
was produced. Like I think when you see it firsthand, it really kind of can sink in and you can actually conceptualize like how not sustainable the retail industry is. And it's great that we're kind of moving towards this direction and their brands like Thousand Fell and now Super Circle that are like trying to further that conversation. And, you know, as a consumer, I feel like we just mindlessly purchase things and not even realize how wasteful like these these products can be or just like the production of them are incredibly wasteful. And, you know, you describe it, Chloe, as like this epiphany moment. How did that then manifest into deciding, okay, like I actually want to create a sustainable footwear company? Yeah, I can, I'll answer this one. Uh, and I, I distinctly remember this conversation. We were, we were walking down Broadway on the way back from, uh, Gap. Gap, which was in Tribeca. Is, I think it's still there. It's in Tribeca. It's the offices are in the same time. Um, and we were like, all right, like if we really want to do this right, and this working to start up and like, if we wanted to rethink this entirely, like what would we really like blue sky? What do we want to do? It's like, we want to do something that's sustainable. And we had tried in the months prior to have a vegan diet and and to be much more conscientious of what we were consuming. Our own consumer choices. That's yeah. right. You thinking, always start there, right? That's right. And it was so hard to find anything that was this intersection of at least moderately fashionable uh, and sustainable and uh, and affordable. Um, and the only options that we were seeing were like Stella McCartney sneakers, like 750 And we were like early in our career and that was like way out of our budget. So um, what was everyone else doing? We didn't really know. We're like, okay, it needs to be something that's sustainable. It needs to be something that's price point attainable. And then we really double clicked into that. And it's like, all right, like we have a, a like good enough chops on the sourcing side to know that we can effectively sustainably source product. Like we can get something that's an organic cotton or we can get something that's a leather substitute that's more sustainable. But like at the end of the day, it all still goes to landfill. And if like we really are serious and like intellectually honest about addressing the um, the, the problem, we've got to, you know, soup to nuts, like cradle to cradle, uh, solve for the waste problem and create something that's fully circular. Um, and, and that was something that felt really worthwhile going after. Um, and we had already had a ton of experience developing footwear and we recognized too, we kind of coined this term of high frequency basics, um, where we were like, footwear is this unique product category and there are others that kind of fit it, right? Like intimates fit into this space too. And like certain like verticals within cut and sew do, but it's the first users often the last. Um, and there aren't these like multiple resale opportunities. These things aren't holding their value. Um, you know, and, and no one knows what to do with it. Like you open your closet and you have like 15 pairs of shoes that are all stuffed in the back that are like your old running shoes. And then you move apartments and you just like close your eyes and throw them away. Right. So there was a really big problem there. And so there was this like perfect intersection between the things that we were passionate about, um, this big, big problem that we wanted to solve within retail, this expertise that we felt like we could bring early in our careers, um, to solving that problem in a physical product. Um, and then, kind of this ambition for a much larger vision, which I think we'll eventually talk to, which is going to be launching in Super Circle, um, being able to kind of power circular systems for for the industry at large. And I think what we did uniquely well, and it was, um, I don't want to say it was like totally masterminded the entire time. I think it was a little reactionary, but but a pretty strong North Star, was not just rushing into building infrastructure for circularity. Um, in 2018, if we can imagine this, like we would go in and be like, hey, listen, like we're going to build these circular products. And people are like, what? What does that even mean? Um, does it mean it's sustainable? Like it had to get boiled down. Like we use coconut husk because like people couldn't conceptualize this idea of being able to recycle recycle an item. Um, and, and so the, <clears throat> the industry just wasn't quite there yet and wasn't quite ready. And the consumer was what needed, needed that tangible product. Um, in their hands to understand like, oh, this is what a circular product could be. So that that was really what sort of was the lightning in the bottle moment, the conversations that we were having as as soon to be early founders and uh, maybe I'll call it budding entrepreneurs. Um, it was brewing. It was brewing in the background. That's right. And and so, yeah, it was, it was essentially that. It was a problem we were really passionate about. It was a very big problem that we wanted to solve. It was something that, that like kind of sat in our our wheelhouse and expertise and we were really excited to kind of go after it. You also mentioned, you know, this concept around circularity and I know that you talk a lot about the circular economy 
Can you share with my listeners a little bit about what the circular economy mm-hmm. is, how it's related to sustainability, how Thousandfell's mission, you know, is very much directly in line with being a circular product, you know, being a part of the circular economy? Yeah. We're working on what circular economy pedagogy, right? So there's a couple of ways that we use to define or talk about circularity. I'll talk about that first and maybe it's a conversation. Yeah, let's do it. Um, the first the, the first and easiest thing to say is, you know, before we get into linear economy versus circular economy, is just how do you make sure that a fiber or a product or a material has value at its end of life? And it's not just trash. Like, how do we move away from this culture and this economy of disposability where you take a resource, you make something, and then it's done. It's never used again. And you've taken that natural resource or that resource, be it synthetic or natural, and you, it, it has a, a single lifespan. And so the circular economy is this move from the linear economy, which is just that. It's this take-make-waste model. You're taking resources, making products, and then they just become trash or waste. And moving towards a model where at the end of life, we still prescribe a value to that fiber, that material, and we keep it in use. And or you know, and if we can't keep it in use indefinitely, right, eventually, and I think when people, I think the reason that the circular economy feels intangible, or like someone said today to us that it feels like a retro-futuristic pipe dream. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, the reason that the circular economy feels that way is because you think about like infinite loops and like you think about these really cutting edge, like far out projects where you can infinitely recycle a material and keep it in use indefinitely. And that's great. And it's incredible. And we're, you know, huge fans of a lot of the work being done on the material science space. But at the bare minimum, it's how do we build an ecosystem and an economy where we can actually put those fibers back into their next best use case, even if that involves downcycling. And I am definitely on record in 2020 and 2019 not agreeing with the statement I just said and and saying that it means keeping things in use indefinitely. But I've I've changed my mind because I, I think that, that there's a North Star for the circular economy to, in, to move from like a make, take, waste to what is it? Make, taste, reuse, make, take, reuse. Yeah, like make, should, take, I need reuse, to know all like these. regenerate. I think Regen- a reuse, one. regenerate. So, you know helping the systems and the people on the planet like kind of be better than how you found it. Like, there's a fourth bullet there. And that is the North Star and it is where we need to go. But there is also a lot of material, not just in the clothing industry, already in use. And how do we find a way to keep that at its next best use case? That's where we're super focused right now um, is, is you know bridging that gap and then helping build systems and infrastructure to get us towards that in- indefinite circularity ultimately. And then about Thousandth on Super Circle, I think it's probably important to frame up the two businesses and what they both do and then how they're both circular. So Thousandfell, as Stuart kind of talked about a little bit, we designed a sneaker that could be pulled apart and where we could either recycle or downcycle every waste stream within the shoe. So the shoe is made of the majority of RPET, which is recycled polyester, and then rubber, natural rubber. And then there are bio-based foams. The RPET and the rubber are actually recycled with recycling partners of ours. And so the shoe is pulled apart and then foams are pulled out and the foams are sent into a downcycling waste stream. Downcycling means um, something still stays in use, but it might be then it might be its last use. So it gets put into composite shredded fiber and goes into housing insulation, automobile insulation, or the rag and shoddy industry or different materials for construction, like composite materials. Um, or things like punching bags or medicine balls, but it stays in use. We're keeping it out of landfill immediately and and, and removing the need for new fiber. Um, and then, you know, the RPT and the rubber, the RPT, how many times can the rubber be turned? You should be talking about this. Yeah, so rubber can be turned several times uh, and you can take it, uh, shred it, grind it, um, and then process it so that you actually create chrome rubber. So it can be used back into outsoles um, for, for new footwear, which is great. So it's componentry to componentry recycling. RPET can be recycled on a loop 20 plus times. Uh, it's a very durable product. Um, and, and it has to have higher grade RPET put back into it. When you do go through the shred process, you do kind of degrade the quality a little bit. Um, but again, it's these loops that you're able to run within these, within these you know, uh, material feeds. So we've been really focused on that. And I know you were kind of teeing this up too, Chloe. The ether foams can be downcycled. We've got 
a ton of bio substitutes that are in our products, whether that's coconut husk or sugar cane that allow us to industrial compost. Um, and so we're, we're substituting a lot of these like traditional component parts, the TPUs, the, the heavy plastics, like the petroleum foams. We've taken that out and substituted a lot of that so that the product can be recycled. And, and this kind of underscores a really important first step that I think the majority of the industry is starting to wake up to, which is designing for recyclability. And so people are thinking about this in the material inputs and the construction techniques that they're doing. And it's a really important first step for future products. And I think what Super Circle does, which I'll let Chloe kind of tee yeah. up because she speaks <clears throat> about it really eloquently, is being able to solve for legacy product and existing product, um, as well as future product. But um, it's all about this, this logistic system and this tech system that we've built. Before you get into Super Circle, just a question about um, you know creating more sustainable products. Do you see this as like an accelerated trend within retail, like with, across all different types of retail companies, like these companies and brands trying to actually build their existing products in a way that's more sustainable, like using more sustainable like materials, fabrics, whatnot, maybe even in like luxury, for example? Yeah, I am really bullish on this. I think that in the next 10 years, no one will throw garments away. It just like won't happen. Um, and I know that sounds a little far-fetched, but like I, I, I really truly believe it. We're seeing it across high love. We're seeing it in like the LVMH caring groups of the world. We're seeing it um, with like contemporary luxury. We're seeing it with like very large mass market brands. And we're seeing it even with fast fashion brands or lower price point brands. Everyone is thinking about how sustainability is going to fit into the way that they're sourcing. Um, and I think a lot of teams are realizing kind of in the lower part of the value chain that until sustainable textiles, if they ever do get to an equivalent price point to virgin materials, they need a, a better way for them to, um, to engage in sustainability. And so recycling really becomes an option there. So if, if you're so price constrained in your COGS, your cost of goods, um, design it to be recycled. And then that way we can come in and we can help really, really drive sustainable initiatives within a business and within a brand. Yeah, I think, you know, I've I've seen a lot around just like this acceleration towards sustainability. It seems like it's such a hot topic now. It's uh, I don't want to say it's becoming a buzzword, but it's something that a lot of people are certainly prioritizing and and finding to be interesting and also incredibly relevant as well. And, you know, I, I want to also touch a little bit on Super Circle because I know that's the new business that you guys are launching. And I am very curious to hear how Super Circle fits into the picture of sustainability and, you know, everything we've talked about thus far with circularity and, and recycling materials and the circular economy. So we started with Thousandville. And Stuart actually talked about this earlier, but when we were first kind of shopping the idea, talking to people about the circularity, sustainability in 2018 and 2019, I think it was too early to build a larger system. And we felt like the industry wasn't quite ready. Brands weren't quite ready to make the investment. And it actually would have been a terrible timing pre-COVID. Um, so we felt like we needed to have our own product line and our own brand to really prove of concept circular retail and what it could do and what it would look like and how it could be actually a sustainable business model. How can circularity be profitable? What does that look like? Um, and so what we've been building, the way we describe it is that thousand fell has been the tip of the iceberg that you can see above the waterline and beneath the waterline, we've been building what we've been calling the full engine to power the circular economy. And that's everything from the tech, the logistics, and the shipping network and warehousing network to actually power take back. So we've talked a little bit about design for recycling, but when you get into what is circularity actually, like, you know, you can design something as sustainable as you want, but if you can't get it back from your customer in like Iowa, North Carolina, and California as like equally easily and you can't get it to one location to sort it, <clears throat> you can't get it to the proper industrial recycling partner, it's not circular. Design, and you know that might be a bold statement, but design for circularity is not circularity. And so um, when we kind of dove in, it really is an infrastructure and logistics problem, and it's the same problem facing the plastics industry. That's right. And so what Super Circle is, it's, you know, it's not a, it is a new business in a sense because we're just launching it. 
but it is the tech and logistics infrastructure that we've built behind Thousandfell. So it's everything that's been running and powering the Thousandfell Take Back program for the last two years. And we're now rolling that out as a separate business offering to, for other brands. So Super Circle enables the world's best brands to power their own recycling and take back businesses. Um, and we actually went live seven weeks ago with Reformation as our first partner. So we now power recycling for Reformation. So all of their denim, sweaters, footwear, it all comes back. <clears throat> you can go online to Ref Recycling and you can see Super Circle and it all comes back through Super Circle. And we recycle it. And well, we don't recycle it. We handle the tech, the shipping, the logistics, and we bank and bail uh, waste cross-brand and then get it to the appropriate recycling partner. Um, and we just went live two weeks ago with Made the Label. We're going live with 10 Tree in a couple of weeks. And we'll be going live with 10 to 15 brands the next 12 months. So, you know, the goal is I think in the next 12 months, we'll ho hopefully have recycled just over a million garments. Wow. I mean, that's incredible. I think there's something really interesting <clears throat> that, that Chloe kind of touched on. And I, I want to pause there for, for everybody listening and, and just really underscore this. Recycling currently exists commercially at scale um, for post-industrial waste. And that's like all the carpet in a high rise in Manhattan. That's all the same material that can be run through this system, very effectively recycled. But it's really easy to collect that. You go to one location, it's all the same items. You don't have to do any sort. You know exactly what's in it. Boom, you recycle it. The thing that we're solving for here is being able to tap into what, what we kind of think is the holy grail of textile waste, which is like everyone's closets. Um, and being able to transform something that individually is not recyclable because it doesn't, we don't know the contents or it's not at scale or it's not prepped in the right way and using the super circle system to deliver it to recyclers so that it can be. And that's like a huge hurdle and it's a huge impediment both for brands, but then also for recyclers as well. And so we're kind of solving this problem um, on, on both sides of it. Um, and what that allows us to do too is embed with really fantastic recycling partners that are pushing the envelope on recycling tech. So thinking about chemical recycling, thinking about how to recycle blends, thinking about how to recycle items without uh, shredding them or without, you know, trimming buttons and zippers and grommets off. So it, it's really awesome. So we're kind of at this intersection between retail brands, consumers, and, and the leaders in the recycling tech. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's so fascinating. And, you know, congratulations on all these launches with, with all these brands that you're working with. Uh, I'm familiar with Reformation and, you know, I love their products and, you know, I really admire their mission, um, which is obviously, you know, very similar to yours. But I think, you know, Chloe brought up a really interesting point also around how design is, you know, it only goes so far in, into the, the picture of the circular economy, like design alone doesn't mean something is, you know, circular. Um, and so it's really about like looking at the infrastructure more so that kind of underpins or is the foundation around the circular economy, um, which is really interesting because I, when I think about sustainability in fashion, I think about like the design of the product. And so it's really fascinating for me to see how far beyond, it, you know, it goes so much far beyond that. Pivoting a little bit away from the circular economy and, um, you know, what we were just talking about, I read somewhere that like sustainability is about the health and wellness of our planet, but more so if it's about the health and wellness of our people. And on this podcast, you know, I talk a lot about wellness and mental health. And I'm curious to hear your perspective on the relationship between sustainability and wellness as you see it, um, you know, as entrepreneurs in the space and also any practices that you do in your life that you consider to be sustainable or, um, you know, are related to wellness. Yeah, there's a couple different things there, I think, too. I think we could kind of tackle this from how we see sustainability and and wellness on sort of like the macro level and what we're seeing with um, products and the way people are like behaving and these like, you know, consumer uh, like changes um, and behavior changes. I also think there's a lot to talk about in the like sustainability and startup space um, and impact space with also just like personal mental health and wellness um, as well. And, and maybe I'll like tackle that first and then back out into things that are maybe a little bit more macro that we're seeing. But um, I think 
it's never been a better time uh, to be a founder. Um, and I think that that doesn't mean that it's easy. I just think that it means that there have the road ahead has been paved in a very like hard fought way by others that have come bef- before us and and the conversation within venture and within founder groups has also really pivoted away from this like total hustle porn, which I think it still does. I mean, people are still talking about how much they work and how hard things are. And, and I think there's some pride in that too. You should, you should be proud of how hard you work. But it's also a lot of that conversation is around avoiding burnout and 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 living a lifestyle that's sustainable, um, that can like sustain you for w- the, the duration that it takes to build, you know, and scale a startup. It's It's not like a two-year blitz. It's like seven to 10 years of time that you're dedicated to it. And, you know, we've seen it firsthand, founders that just go, go, go and just burn out. And I think what's so interesting is there's a lot of resources and there's also like a lot of mental health startups too within kind of our portfolio, uh, our our investors' portfolios that are kind of like peers in the space that are kind of addressing this. Um, and, And I think that's really great. And I think, listen, I also think that that was like precipitated by the craziness that was COVID and people trying to figure out how to pilot early stage startups through, and even later stage startups through kind of an unprecedented time period. Um, So I think that's really great. And I think that um, there's been a big change on like sustainable, like work styles. Um, And listen, like our team still works super hard. Like I, I would be totally lying to you if I not said that this is a nine to five so job because um, it's definitely not. Everyone's always on and they're working really, really hard, but, and, and really passionate about the mission. Um, but, uh, but I think that there's a little bit more focus on wellness. I also think when we look at kind of like a, a macro point of view, um, you know, th- there really is this idea of um, intersectionality in the, in the impact and sustainability space. And I don't necessarily mean that in like maybe the textbook sense of, of that. I mean that more in the sense that, you know, there is a lot of overlap in mission between, um, you know, activists and thought leaders in sustainability and then in other movements too. Um, and, and in, and in the wellness movement as well. And I, and I know a lot of people are thinking about, um, kind of this synergy and alignment with, you know, earth and renewability and regenerative farming and connecting us back to like the core of where everything comes from um, in fashion and in, and in retail and in sustainable fashion and sustainable retail. Um, and then having that kind of also overlap into kind of this, you know, like macro groundedness. Um, uh, and And we're seeing, you know, we're seeing this too with like a lot of the things that we consume, um, you know, as, as personal consumers, right. Whether it's the items that we're buying, um, uh, the food that we're, that we're eating. Um, and I think we're a little lucky because we're also like in this, um, I don't want to call it an echo chamber because echo chamber kind of has a negative connotation, but in this like cool community of people that are pushing the envelope and, and peers that are doing things like vertical farming and thinking about things like Ayurvedic medicine and, and making that mainstream. And I think, I think that's really been an, an incredible sort of um, intersection with with sustainability and with health and wellness. Sustainability and the future of sustainability and um, the climate is inextricably linked to wellness and health. And there's, you know, I, I could probably go on and list a million stats. I love data, but, um, you know, it's, it's pretty hard to, um, you know, or, it, you know, it, it, there's, there's, clear, clear evidence that an investment in in a sustainable climate actually impacts your health. Everything from asthma to, um, you know, landfill, just even thinking about ways to be able to start there, but lecate, water runoff, uh, sludge, lecate is like a toxic sludge that runs off in landfills, landfills being disproportionately closer to lower income communities, Uh, landfills now in the developing world across uh, Latin America and Africa. And so I think you were probably asking about wellness as far as personal wellness and mental health, but there's so much in the way of just, you know, s- sustainable societies, sustainable urban development and climate. And so I think it's easier for me 
to to put in a 12-hour day to work every Saturday. You know, not that that's great and you should take Saturdays off, but it's easier for me to just dive all in on something like this when I can see the bigger impact. And so I think probably many people on our team would also speak to vision and mission, as Stuart mentioned, um, as a main driver. Yeah, well said. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, also, it does make sense that, you know, the sustainability and like wellness of our planet can, you know, directly impact our own health and wellness, you know, even at like a physiological level. Um, It's funny, I was talking to my roommate the other day and she was like, my eyes are really itchy and, you know, I like she wasn't feeling well. And I was like, oh, it's probably allergies. And she's like, no, it's like, I think it's just because New York is so dirty, like in the air, it's so dirty. And she's from, uh, you know, the South. And so I think it just, the quality, the air quality is different there. And, you know, it's just, it's interesting to see when you're in a big city like New York, all the pollution and um, it, it, it all kind of ties in together to your point. Um, so there is this very strong link between the sustainability of our planet and our own health and well-being. Yeah. And, um, and a very big link, particularly for your generation, not saying that we're not the same generation, but uh, younger generations between climate change and mental health and climate doom or climate grief. Yeah, that's right. And I think it's one of the top five things that's causing this inextricable, or not inextricable, but this inescapable sense of doom and gloom and anxiety this never-ending anxiety that comes from news media and hyper-polarized um, pol- politics, that comes from COVID, that comes from now we're in a, we're he- are we heading towards a recession? Is the economy falling off a cliff? What's inflation? And then underlying all of that is an article or a report every other day that the, the planet's screwed and you know we didn't fix it fast enough and in a hundred years everything's going to be underwater, and it's terrifying and it, we. Have put blinders on, and we're able to be like, eh, okay, fine, climate change, another thing. But I, you know, I also think that the ability to take action, the ability to participate in a new system, and the ability for both consumers, employees, coworkers, us as founders, to not like to sit there and do nothing, but know that you're hurtling towards this precipice, Stuart likes to say, of like a cliff, like that creates this feeling of paralysis. Um, and but the ability, you know, even if it's you know, even if it's small or it's incremental to be able to make changes within your personal life, be it even, again, the type of industry that you go into helps. Yeah. I mean, earlier you mentioned that, you know, what we need to kind of start with ourselves around sustainability, like doing things that are more sustainable. It actually starts with like evaluating maybe the choices that you make. So drawing from your own life experiences, what are some practices that you, you know, you adopt in your day-to-day life whether they be wellness practices or not, that you consider to be sustainable? Like how have you created sustainable lives for yourselves? You're completely right. The first place to look is at home. What can you do? Um, And then from there, you can think about career and industry. And then from there, you can even think about your own investment dollars and where that's going, which I think is really exciting that personal investment in um, sustainable ventures and sustainable funds is actually becoming more accessible. And I think that's been a huge movement for personal finance. But in your in our personal lives, we've done everything from thinking about diet to buying locally, shopping locally, cutting meat. We don't eat red meat um, unless we're out. We went vegan for a time. We introduced chicken and fish that's right. back in. And that's just a, you know, a medical need. And, and it wasn't for us a moral thing about eating animals. But we do actually think about the farms and the businesses that we're supporting and only wild caught. So there's a lot of micro decisions you as a consumer can make, right? And a lot of it starts with food. It's the easiest place to start. And it's one of the biggest impacts you can have. Then transportation, how you think about transportation. We're lucky being in New York that we don't own cars. We don't have to drive a lot. There is public transportation available. So that's easier. But then from there, it's other consumer habits and consumer choices. And I hate the answer like, oh, well, just shop brands you love. It's not just shop brands you love for the sake of shopping, um, it's, but it truly is one of the biggest, you know, your, the, your wallet is one of the biggest places you can vote day to day. And it's not shop for the sake of shopping, but you, everybody does need to shop. Stuart needed this white shirt. <laughs> uh, he got it at the real room. Did. You know, this is a secondhand shirt. Shout out um, to the real world. Probably 60, 70% of our clothing is secondhand. <laughs> yeah. Secondhand or vegan. We're trying to do no new leather. We're trying to buy no, no items that are new with leather. So, you know, 
you know, not shopping for the sake of shopping, but supporting businesses that we want to see stick around and, and thinking about sustainable habits with our wallet. Um, then from there, how can you get involved and how can you think about your own career path and the, where you want to invest your time and energy and the types of businesses that you want to be involved in and the types of businesses and companies that you want to see around in 20 years? Because those are the companies you need to support. Um, and um, so I think, and I think that that's changing. I think that, you know, I, I see with our generation, people making, I was just on LinkedIn earlier, looking at a friend from college who just went to a climate school for a week. Um, people, and you know, left Wall Street and went to a climate school for a week and is now doing impact investing. So like people are, are making decisions more and more so about the world that they want to see in the future across, you know, their career. I mean, there's all, there's just like the dumb small things. Like I hate to tell you things like bring a reusable water bottle, but there's the lifestyle changes. Like within fashion, one that I love is do not wash your clothes. Don't wash your clothes. Please stop washing your clothes. I never wash my clothes. I wash only undergarments and workout clothes and <laughs> hang, I like hang everything. I steam it. I'm like, I make sure it doesn't smell. I spot clean, but it's like one of the worst things you can do is washing your clothes. And run the dryer. Yeah, Don't so run the dryer, energy. hang dry it. If you are going to wash them, hang dry it. Well, in Europe, they hang dry everything. I know my family in Greece, we just hang it out. to. Dry. It's so hot there. Yeah. So, um, but it's very sustainable. Better, um, your item I know. I, yeah. The only thing I'd add to that too of like things that I've been really excited about has been I, I feel like I've double clicked one more layer into um, like natural wellness. Mm. Um, and I'm no expert by any means, but I'm starting to do do things more like take ashwagandha like on a daily basis yeah. or think more about like turmeric lattes. And I feel like it's it's this beautiful like cultural circularity where we're just like returning back to this like Cult, this like culturally like known truths from like India and the rest yeah. of the like these ancient civilizations that are like oh yeah of course like we've been doing this for two thousand years um, but I think that's really interesting and it's been it's it's felt really aligned in this idea of like back to the beginning um, but no I, I think I think Chloe's right and I think I, I haven't really like vocalized this this thought before but you know. I'd say maybe a hundred years ago and then up through, I don't know, let's say the, let's say the eighties um, uh, or even before there was this like massive industrialization and innovation in, in like the world. Right. And like there was all of this major progress and it wasn't just for progress sake, but like this very deliberate, thoughtful progress. Um, and it's not to say that we lost our way, like, you know, in the past 30 years, but we got a little off track, I think, where um, the end goal wasn't what it used to be uh, with this idea of like building a better world and a better society. And I think people are kind of returning back to that. Um, and I'm really, again, like as I'm maybe overly bullish, but but bullish on on nothing ever being thrown away from your closet in 10 years, I really think people are reevaluating the, the, the mission of, of their work. And I think that's awesome. And I like could not encourage that more. Um, and I also think that I'm just going to like borrow from Chloe's narrative. Like you can be in any industry, whether it's fashion or finance or, um, or, or, you know, tech, and you can make decisions within your org to more closely align with, sustainability and wellness. Um, I know a lot of teams have like sustainable fiber SMEs or they've got um, impact arms and like trying to like nudge your career in that direction and take an active role and kind of pushing your career in that way is I think amazing. And then it gives you the, the skill set and the tools to make bigger and bigger changes, both personally and professionally. And I, I like could not encourage that enough. Yeah, it's a, it's a really great point you bring up. And I think it also goes back to this idea around just taking small steps also, because there's a lot you can do clearly to incorporate more sustainable practices into your routine, like lifestyle changes or in your career and the decisions that you make. But I think it's really important to kind of boil it down into the small 
actions you can take every day that will kind of aggregate and culminate into something greater. And, you know, I even feel inspired now to like go through my closet and also be a bit more like mindful about what I'm purchasing and consuming. Um, And instead of just like throwing away clothes that I don't wear, donating them or actually purchasing clothes through like a secondhand store, thrifting or finding more, you know, ways to have like sustainable purchasing habits. So I'm really inspired from what you guys have been sharing tonight and, You know, I think it's also important that we continuously educate ourselves because there's clearly so much to continue to learn in sustainability um, and how things are going to progress with the industry, you know, over the course of the next five, 10 years as well. So, you know, I really appreciate the both of you coming on to the podcast to share some of your insights, talk about Thousand Fell, Uh, super excited uh, to see Super Circle be launched. And, you know, before we wrap up tonight, my final question that I have for the both of you is something that I ask every guest that comes onto the show, and it's directly related to happiness and mental health. What is something that brings you a bit of endorphins every day? You already mentioned ashwagandha, which we're like huge fans of. We've been taking it for like a year now. Uh, or like evangelizing the power of fungi to anybody who will listen. Uh, for me, the number one thing, although it's not every day, but it's making time for my closest friends. Like I I think what keeps me going is having like really concentrated, I call it hang time, really concentrated time where I'm just like totally turned off of work and I'm with my closest friends and I'm like, this is why I'm alive. For me, it's like they're just so important to me and it's so fun and I love seeing and they're my college friends. Um, and so I think finding time for yourself with friends and community and then family also falls into that and hanging out with family and seeing them is super important to me. But finding time and space to just completely shut off and be with the people you care about is what kind of keeps me mentally in check and got me through like COVID and fundraising over COVID in the last year. Um, yeah. That's a really good one. And now makes mine seem way less deep and heartfelt. Oh, obviously mine was hanging time. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good one. Um, no, this is this is mine. Um, I love uh, I love routine and ritual, but um, but not uh, too much structure. And I have to throw that out there as being like a startup founder. Like this is the wild wild west, and I love that. Um, but. Every morning, I've like stopped drinking uh, coffee every morning. Cheers. Yeah, this is mine. Every morning, I drink tea. Yeah. I drink a cup of tea. Um, and the brand that I love uh, is tea too. And I, that mm-hmm. probably makes me super basic. <laughs> but um, there's this Melbourne breakfast tea. And it was like, for whatever reason, it's the most enjoyable, like amazing thing. And it, it's not to the point where like I can't start my morning. Yeah. It's, I'm not the... I'm not the coffee grouch. I used to be that person and I'm like, thankfully not anymore, but it really calms me down. And I think that there are these moments that you're running so hard and everyone is, and life's moving at you a million miles an hour. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, I think that people, people mistakenly identify these like major, like highlight moments of like, you know, um, uh, vacations that are like defining happiness in their life. And like those moments are, are great, but they're, they're few and far between. Um, the moments that really drive happiness are the moments that are repetitive that you do every single day that dominate like actual meaningful hours of your time. And like to Chloe's point, it's friends and it's being, being in that community. I think to my point, it's, it's kind of the small things that you can do um, every day to slow down for 10 minutes. Um, and it seems inconsequential, but um, it really it really makes me happy. They add up too. I mean, everything that you guys just said really just resonated with me. And I took a positive psychology class in college. And I remember our professor talking about how like we think that we're the happiest when we're on vacations because we look back and we have such fond memories of those times. But like in reality, if you try to recall what you did on vacation every single day, like you're not going to have any, any memory of that. Like like to your point, Stuart, it's really about those small changes that you make every day. And I really resonated with that point on like finding comfort in ritual and routine, but not too much structure because I think it's really easy for me to like want that routine and conflate it with having a lot of structure. 
like you said, life just comes at you in, in a million directions and a million miles an hour and you can't always have that structure. And so it's like, what are those small things you can do every day that are grounding that you know you can look forward to that kind of will set you up for success? You know, I also gave up, I gave up coffee a year ago. Um, I'm a big matcha person. Haven't really got into, I mean, I like English breakfast tea, but matcha is more of like my go-to drink. You got to try tea too. If you want to go crazy, also try chaga tea. Also, <laughs> again, evangelizing the fungi here. But I've, I have you heard of mud water? It's like the coffee. Yeah. Water. So I um, used to kind of partner them with my podcast, uh, and you know I have an affiliate code. Shout out to the affiliate code. Um, and it's for those who don't know, it's a coffee alternative, but it's a combination of like different types of mushrooms. And I've also seen a lot in the news about ashwagandha, but I don't really know a lot about it and like what the health benefits are. So do you guys like take a pill? Is it like a drink? Like how do you consume it? And what are the health benefits? Disclaimer, this is not medical advice. There are powders, there are pills, and there are drinks. And I started with drinks and then I just started taking the pills. And um you can Google it, so don't take my advice for it. But essentially, it regulates what it's, the claim is that it regulates cortisol. And there are some studies, although there hasn't been enough research into total fungi. But whether it's placebo or not, we feel it. We're like less stressed, we're more mellow. I just, you know, I'm sleeping through the night, and particularly like during high stress things like fundraising or pitching, or you know, it, it's awesome. And you know, the idea is I think that it regulates cortisol. It has benefits for memory. It has benefits for diabetes and blood sugar. So I think there's so much we don't know about the power of fungi, but yeah, similarly we're into chaga and yeah. mud water. And it's all like and- the superfoods also. I mean, I'm, Right. That yeah. really lights me up. And maybe that should be like another podcast episode, The Power of Fungi. I, love it. I think that would be pretty awesome. But there's paying it forward. Yeah. We're paying it forward with good ideas. <laughs> exactly. I love it. Well, thank you both so much for coming on to the podcast. For my listeners, you can find thousandfell.com, Instagram, thousand underscore fell. It has been such a pleasure having the both of you as guests. Thank you again for coming on to Everyday Endorphins. Thanks for having us. Thank you for listening and remember to like, rate, and review this podcast on whichever listening platform you prefer. Don't forget to keep spreading endorphins and find things that bring you endorphins every day. See you next time.